Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Fantastical. We are going to talk about the games we played this week, then the news and why it doesn't matter, and then on to our feature game, which is Stationfall. Mark, what did we play this week? Played another game of Hot Lead. Now, to be clear, this is hot lead, not hot lead. Everyone has the same question, in part because the cover of the game shows an elephant holding a gun. And so naturally, one wonders, what on earth are we talking about? Hot lead is nominally about undercover investigations, but it is a quick runner Knizia card game. And not to submit to the lazy trope that Knizia games don't have theme, but it's a quick and light card game. It's mostly about card play and not really so much about theme. You're trying to collect points, but you don't want too many of the same set. If you collect four or more of the same set, then you're going to lose them all, but three gives you bonus points, and so you're really encouraged to play around with the risk. It's kind of a blind bidding game, in that everyone is dealt out a hand of cards at the start of the game, and it will last entirety of ten rounds, and everyone plays a card face down simultaneously, and the ranked order of the cards will determine the ranked order of the arbitrary card sets that they win. It lasts around 15 minutes. It has some lovely moments of discovery and anguish when you realize that the 27 you played is the, you know, the lowest card or the highest card. Hard to take it too, too seriously again because it's kind of a blind bidding situation. You don't get a good sense of what people have in their hands even near the end of the game. But the theming is perfectly inoffensive and the anthropomorphic animals are, you know, there. You can have a, a discussion afterwards about which of them are most... Uh, what's the family-friendly word? Dateable. And that is absolutely something that we enjoy doing. But at any rate, uh, this was part of the Criminal Capers collection of Bitewing games that was released. Of the three games, I think the Soda Smugglers is the one that is shown to have the, the best replay value. 
hot lead is okay. And quite frankly, Pumafiosi is um, not something I'm, I'm keen to return to. But Hot Lead is a fine filler and uh, worthy addition to quick 15-minute card games to round out the evening. Not the Doctor's best, but not the Doctor's worst either. So that is Hot Lead, published by Bitewing Games. Mark and I got to play a great two-player game called Masters of the Universe, Fields of Eternia, the board game. Yeah, I don't know why those four other schmucks were there. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> we played it with six players. This is designed by David Kesh and Jacob Oslek and put out by Archon Studio. Now, Walker, is this Masters of the Universe Clash for Eternity? No. Is this Masters of the Universe Battleground? No, it is not, Mark. This would be Masters of the Universe Fields of Eternia? Fields of Eternia. Ah, so I can get this uh, through through my local board no, game retailer no, if I live in North America? No, you cannot. Oh. I'm sorry that we're talking about a game that is that is a little hard to get. This is the European... Well, not hard to get for license. our European listeners. No. That, comparatively easy for our European listeners. And this is everything I wanted it to be. It is just the dead talisman, old style, running around beating up baddies, flipping cards, fighting each other. It has actually, the combat system, I really enjoy. It has, you're playing from like some, almost like a Gloomhaven type deck because as you go through your little adventures, you're putting better cards into the deck. So you're, you know, creating it better, the way you want it to be. And you're, when it's your turn to fight, you're putting it into either initiative, combat, or defense. And it has some special cards as well that lets you mix it up. And I thought it was much different than anything I've ever played before. Uh, I don't necessarily agree that it was much different. It reminded me a lot of the combat system of Cry Havoc, only vastly better. I didn't really like Cry Havoc, which was a Troops on a Map game by Grant Rodiak. It had this notion of similarly deploying your troops in that case to various columns to determine what was going to happen. In this context of the Master of the Universe Fields of Eternia, you are uh, really, I think, the emphasis on initiative was nice. It's tricky sometimes. In some games, initiative is all important. Sometimes initiative isn't relevant at all. That's one of the reasons why we really like Undaunted. The initiative system is really well interwoven. I think that, I mean, Masters of the Universe is not nearly as well designed as Undaunted, but they found a way to make initiative relevant, but not all important. Because if you win initiative, you will do a wound flat. And so it is possible in some stalemates, especially if you start a fight, the, the opponent can't just put everything into defense and expect to win the fight. They have to worry about covering the spread, as it were. I think that is a sports ball term, but I'm not 100% certain. It could be. Yeah. And uh, they do eat sandwiches at sports ball things. So the spread. Yeah. You spread it on the bread. Is that? I Go on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for trying to impart unto me this wisdom walker. I appreciate it. And yeah, all three categories really matter. And you're playing the cards one at a time. And so it's kind of tense. And interesting, when you are involved in combat, because there are two kinds of turns in Masters of the Universe Fields of Eternia. The turns that take 10 seconds, if that, if that. and then the turns that take five minutes, sometimes longer. And uh, let's just say that those turns aren't evenly distributed throughout the game. So it's a six-player, it's nominally a six-player game in that there are six characters involved in every every game. And initially I commented that that's a terrible number because it doesn't divide well across teams. Normally one might think, oh, well, six, six characters play with three players, everyone has two characters each. You can't do it that way because they're divided into two teams of three. So basically the only even divisors are two and six. We've tried six. Don't recommend it. This is, ba you're quite right. This is a two-player game. On top of that, in Masters of the Universe, you have the, uh, the 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 necessary references. 
A lot of the references are to very, very deep cuts. Suffice to say, uh, when I was a child, I was very big into He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I don't recognize a large proportion of the names being checked in the various adventure cards. And on the topic of the adventure cards, they range all over the place. You might wander into one that says, do this very, very hard thing, and if you do it successfully, you don't get any victory points. Or all the way to, hey, have some presents and some victory points besides. I was desperately unimpressed with the with, with the balance of those cards. But as you say, the combat, the PvP, the player versus player combat was really surprisingly good. I would like it to be ripped off in a better game. Agreed. And there's two types of combat. You can even, there's a type of combat if you're just uh, flipping up a normal uh, action card that you just roll a bunch of dice and allocate them in a certain way. I thought that was interesting that there was two different forms of combat. Yes, but... The, uh, Not that it ever happened. We we tried it once, and the odds seemed to be really bad because in the dice-based combat, you only do one round, and if you don't successfully knock out a creature, just nothing happens. And we were in a position of just, you know, rough back-of-the-envelope math. It seemed very unlikely that you'd ever knock anything out in that form of combat in Masters of the Universe, even if you just devote all of it to offense. On the other hand, in the player-versus-player combat, you can play up to two rounds, and so there's more interesting trade-offs. As the first round evolves, you can pivot to decide how long you want the combat to last and figure, well, I'll make it up in the second round, or no, I think I can really make a push for this first round. And sometimes playing against the environment, you did that combat mode as well. Just the, the sort of basic wander out in the wilderness and have an adventure seemed utterly worthless. On top of that, a lot of the other balance seemed really suspect. Spells we only ever purchased to satisfy the also unbalanced victory condition cards... Equipment seemed highly situational. And then there are vehicles. Buy vehicles. Invest in vehicles. Allow me to say, because the spells would be something like, this costs for Eternium, which apparently is the currency of the fields of Eternium. It, it, use it to res people. Use it to retreat. Rub it into wounds. Put it in a salve. Drink it with your tea. Anyway. You can go on vacation with Eternium. You can go to Sub-Eternia or Sky-Eternia or regularly Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> the vehicles, so for example, you could buy a spell which costs three Eternium and is a one-shot and will do something situational, or you could buy a vehicle which will make you a hyper-fast badass for the rest of the game. I think I know which of those two I prefer. Anyway, there's a, there's a, this is a classic Archon design in a number of ways. Lots of fun stuff, lots of great components, relatively faithful to the IP, at least in terms of overall visual touchstones, but the good bits are kind of fighting for attention with all the other un unbalanced noise. I I'd like it if it were two-thirds the length. Yes. Even then, with six, I might be willing to forgive it as sort of a team adventure thing, you know, and watch He-Man go and do his fifth combat against whatever. But as it is, oof. <laughs> this is a two-player game that still wants to be a little bit shorter. Agreed. And that is He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Fields of Eternia, the board game. Got to play a game of Beyond the Sun with the expansion Leaders of a New Dawn. Let me speak to you of crushing disappointment, Walker. Oh, no. I have been looking forward to the Leaders of a New Dawn expansion for years, because it was announced very shortly after publication of the base game. And one of the features that was announced early on was a solo module. Keep in mind, this was relatively early in the pandemic, and we were all thirsty for solo Beyond the Sun. A number of things have happened since then. Number one, 
although the pandemic still rages and people are still dying, public gaming is now much more of a thing than it was during the age of lockdown. And number two, Beyond the Sun is readily available on Board Game Arena, a widely available online platform. And so the desperate need that a number of people felt, myself included, for a solo version of Beyond the Sun, mm, not really there anymore. So I feel its moment has passed in terms of that. We did play with the new asymmetric factions, with the new technology cards shuffled into the massive deck of technologies, and with the new module, the leaders. Now, these are these are all module elements. You can introduce them as you wish, piecemeal, or all at once. They're all very simple, though. So I spent all of two minutes reading the rule booklet, and we just included them all in. I was playing with someone else's copy. And the new texts are fine-ish. You know, it's just, there's already lots of text. I, I, having, despite having played Beyond the Sun about a dozen times, I'm not tired of the technology deck in Beyond the Sun. So, so it, was, it, was just, it was just more of the same. They didn't, like, introduce a new type of sort well, of... Well, that's where the leaders come in. Angle or... Oh. Then the new angle, the new module is leaders. There are two new modules that really change the game, leaders and the solo version. I haven't played the solo version. The AI looks reasonably simple to execute, but again, I feel the moment's passed. I don't really... I, I, I don't think I'll be playing it solo, personally. Leaders, I didn't use my leaders. Flat. One of my leaders gave me a new action space and was worth two bonus points at the end of the game. And another one of my leaders gave me three opportunities over the course of the game to add jump plus two to another action, giving me jump. But relatively by accident, very early on in the game, I invented wormhole generators and something I only ever needed one jump to move any of my ships anywhere anyhow. And so I... I didn't use my leaders at all. You broke the game, Mark. No, I didn't break the game. <laughs> leaders are a very, very minor modification to a game that already has lots of fun and interesting things to do, which, again, is in Beyond the Sun is mostly the tech deck. And I wasn't really in a position to really scrutinize the new techs. I didn't have the time to sit down and look at all the new techs and think about their, their possibilities. Because as it is, in every game of Beyond the Sun, unless you've played it literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times and you know the tech decks backwards and forwards, you're going to be playing with new stuff or at least playing with the stuff that you've played with before in a slightly new context. And I have to say, introducing the expansion did not enhance that sensation to me at all. And as a consequence, I was very, very disappointed. I, I wanted the leaders at least to inject something new. I wanted the new factions to feel cool. We played with both the new factions as well. They were fine, but I was reminded that the asymmetric factions in Beyond the Sun aren't super asymmetric to begin with, which is reasonable. Again, the primary draw is the massive tech deck and it, the, the the lovely tech tree that develops over, over a game of Beyond the Sun. And that is unchanged. But at the end of the day, I, I just didn't really feel that the expansion added any variety that I needed. In lots of other games, you can introduce the expansion after a couple plays. And you're like, oh, this is new. This is this This mixes things up. But you get that sensation every game of Beyond the Sun anyway. Yes. So unless you're sick to death of the existing tech decks in Beyond the Sun, I'd say pass on the expansion. It's not going to add anything new. If every time you pull up Beyond the Sun, you feel like you're discovering a new tech or playing with some new toy, as I still am, you don't need it. Yeah, not only are they different in different positions or or different every time, they also come out at different times. Exactly. Which, which totally you know changes up how it plays. Exactly. So that was Beyond the Sun, Leaders of a New Dawn, designed by Dennis K. Chan and Joseph Summer. Uh, I've been friends with Dennis K. Chan. He was the first person I ever knew to own a 3D printer. These are the levels of disclosure and detail that you're only going to get at Silver and Robot Games. Published by Rio Grande Games this year, which again is part of the problem. Talk about name dropping. Mark, you and I got to bring Keep the Heroes Out back to the table. And we enjoy this because it is cute AF. This is designed by Louis Bruh and published by Bruh Games Incorporated. Yeah, bruh. 
And what Keep the Heroes Out does is sort of turns the, you know, adventure trope on its head. You're actually playing the monsters, fighting against the heroes. The heroes uh, follow this sort of computer-like, you know, surge towards the center of your dungeon. And you get to use different methods depending on what class of monster you're going to play. Like uh, slimes just sort of, you know, spread across the whole map and just bog them down that way. Uh, lizard men, sh you know, have a good range. Uh, poltergeists have great movement, and so they can, you know, zip across the map and, and hit the trouble areas. We have a giant dragon that does tons of damage. There are a bunch of different monsters you can play, all that look very cute and charming, and like 23 different scenarios you can play. We played, and that's, I think that's the one part where it always gets fiddly is with you know when, when you're flipping over the cards and you're flipping over scenario cards and do you like flip over another card or does this card count but anyway right. other than that it always is fun to play mark what do you think of keep the heroes out the player bits are great there's so much personality in the card art and the meeple art definitely in the root school of uh, meeple art and the different effects that you get to trigger and buying new stuff and, and even just the basic actions and spreading yourself on the mat and knowing when to take hits and, and knowing where to go. All that part is great. I played Keep the Heroes out now three times, and I still find the AI a bit of a mystery. I haven't internalized it. For a relatively simple game, this isn't me saying like, oh, well, you know, if I haven't mastered it by the third turn, it must be bad. No, it's just I, I, I still find it a little counterintuitive how the heroes activate and how they basically can move any number of squares before they go and do something, either inflicting a kill or looting a chest. Consequently, it is hard for me to parse the game state and things seem to happen somewhat randomly. But that's just a, a, a perception problem on my part. So there could be a hero at the far edge of the dungeon and pull the wrong card and suddenly it can be right at the heart of your dungeon where you need to defend based on where things are. So as a consequence, I feel that good play, the kind of play you need to do in games of this ilk to minimize the effects of a random draw, thus far has eluded me. I have a certain degree about how to play reactively, but I don't know how to play proactively. Now, I am interested in continuing on this journey by virtue of the charm and appeal of the basic monster characters, but... When you compare it to some of your other great so, uh, co-op AI systems, you know, Pandemic, this ain't. Pandemic is just one of the reasons why I think it was such a, a masterwork of design, not just because it was such an early co-op, was because the way bad things happen is so intuitive and obvious that it leads you to focus on your own play, as opposed to trying to remember the specific combinatorics of the way AI works and the, the, the weird thing about when things get reactivated, it's not super complicated. It's just so counterintuitive and more complicated than anything you do on your turn that I feel that there's a bit of an imbalance there. So uh, I'm very happy to have played Keep the Heroes Out again. I believe I was the one who suggested it, and I'd happily play it some more. I love trying out the new critters, and maybe someday I'll get a handle on the enemy AI, and when and if that happens, I'll probably be able to give more substantive comments on to what extent clever play is possible. Because as it is, I, I get to have fun during my turn, but then the AI happens, it's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> Which, is that a me problem or is that a game problem? I don't know. I suspect it's a me problem, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, it's, I think it's a mixture of both. One, it's very random where the heroes come in. And two... I yeah, think, that, that is true. I, and it's two, I think we really need to uh, concentrate more on the order in which we... Uh, activate them because I think in the first game we're just 
putting down although they go in the eyeballs well here's an eyeball and we'd activate that one and just bring it all the way through and then do the other one instead of looking at the two eyeballs and thinking well which one should we do first sure. and how, how but again i'm ill-equipped to do that because i still can't quite remember how the AI works true yeah yeah and that is keep the heroes out by brewer games we get to play Theurgy. Theurgy is a game designed by Charlotte Dowling and Oliver Josiah of the Ministry of Meeples. The Ministry of Meeples seems to have uh, it seems to exist exclusively for the purpose of publishing Theurgy. Theurgy is the kind of structure of a game that I'm increasingly identified as a game that is not for me, and I suspect that there may be some fundamental design issues with the approach that Theurgy has. The structure is as follows: you have a core action selection mechanism. That is very straightforward, very clean, and very deterministic in its application. Not necessarily in terms of the game states that it produces, but very deterministic in terms of what you are going to do. And then they look at that, and on top of that, they say, ooh, let's throw in a whole bunch of random effect cards. Right on top of that, slather a whole bunch of random cards there, see what happens. I don't like that mix. Yeah, it's very much like taking a Reiner Knizzi game where you get the two actions, everything's on lock, everything is no luck, and leads to very interesting strategic choices, and then giving everyone, like, random event cards that they get to play whenever they want. To a certain extent, it reminds me most of a game we played recently, Seismic. And to its credit, Seismic is developing a more deterministic variant that gets rid of a lot of the one-shot action cards. I'm eager to try it. I haven't been able to yet. But at any rate, in Theurgy, just as an example, one of the four core actions you can do is spread the faith. And this is you get to put a token of your color on any vertex of three hex spaces. And what that does is, in the context of the game, allows you to spread your religion, you all play as half-forgotten gods, to those hexes on the vertices. Now, therefore, if you've built up over the course of the game a strong interconnected web of faith tokens, you are very in a very strong position defensively and in a very good position offensively in those areas. And it can be a very painstaking, very difficult procedure to get that up. But once you do, you're in a good position, you can start leveraging that advantage. Alternatively, you can play a card that just says, oh, steal three faith tokens from other players on a given hex, such as what I did. And then I went from having no presence in the center of the board to having an overwhelming presence in the center of the board. That's the RG. So I, what, yeah. uh, what else is there to say? Like, much to say. like I said, it has, like you said, it has great action selection. It's very much like Scythe. You have four actions. You put your, your action selection on it. And next turn, you can't take the same one. So you have to s- semi-cycle through them. So it's not as though you can get to use these crazy cards every turn but you do get to use them every other turn if you wish. But that is at the sacrifice of the other actions and like the other games we've talked about. But it's not the sacrifice of other actions because there are miracles, they're called miracle cards, that correspond to all the other actions but better. Like, why would you go do a pilgrimage when there are miracle cards that say do two pilgrimages in succession? Why would I spread the faith when I can play a miracle that says steal three tokens from other players? Like, it just, it, it completely invalidates the clean, excellent action selection mechanisms of the game. It's true. It's almost like an abstract. Like, again, the, the, the base structure is about slowly spreading influence, picking fights where you can, trying to leverage influence where possible, and it interfaces with where your, your, your troops are on the map, as it were. Uh, but when these miracles come into play, everything else seems to be undermined and tossed out the window. Yeah, and it has these interesting monsters as well that you can move across the table. But, yeah, the, action, the actions are very interesting. If you took the miracle cards out, I think it would be great. 
great game. You'd have you'd have to replace it with something else. Like, yes. I, I oh, don't. Yes. Th- there wouldn't be quite enough going on if you just yanked the miracles right up from the middle. But the monsters already add a little bit of je ne sais quoi to the, to the proceedings. But they're nothing. None of the monsters have the effect of oh, just do this action but five times better. It so the monsters are fine. So they clearly understand how to keep things in check in some context. Just the miracles make me almost angry and they, and because they, how it undermines their own design. Theurgy is a great design that they they decided to undermine with their own action cards and they promote it because you always have three miracle cards. And if you don't like the ones you got, you just throw them away. There's no oppor- there's no yeah, opportunity cost. Uh, they just. Again, it's a. It reminds me a little bit of a seismic. It, there's hardly any opportunity cost to getting a lot of these cards in. There's usually not too much opportunity cost of getting these cards out, and so you're left with these effects to be like, mm, I guess I gotta re- arbitrarily hose somebody. Uh, all right, let's go to town. And I find I find games like Theurgy very frustrating. I agree because there's so much potential there, and I was looking forward to it. I do want to try it again. We need to try it with Dewey because he really enjoys sort of the spreading the faith type vibe. So I'm sure I'm going to play it one more time. Oh, yeah. And indeed, thematically and mechanically, the whole aspect of spreading the faith is very, very well done. Just, I I can't, I, I didn't do that action very much. I, I played Miracles instead. <laughs> there you go. So going from a game that was kind of a flop to a game that is fantastic. This is called Tapple. You should tell the story about how you, how Tapple came into your life, Walker. Well, I've been I've I've had Tapple sort of like on my Amazon sort of wish list due to like I've seen it on streams and other uh-huh. other places. Okay. And then we've also talked about how we wanted a our own copy of So Clover. So we have a, yes. a large mall here in town and they do have a, a gaming store in there. So I thought since I was in the mall, I would check to see if they had it. Of course they didn't, but lo and behold, there's a store called As Seen on TV. Yep, right and next to the Sham Wow. That's and right. And, spray on hair. And at a distance, I saw Tapple, and in I went, and it was very reasonably priced, so home I brought the Tapple board. So Tapple is very much like categories or Taboo, uh, in that it is a word game premised on trying to pick words that start with a different letter than everyone else has picked. But rather than making lists or having people recite or give clues, instead what you do is it looks like a kind of like an old school label maker to my mind. It has the letters A through W as buttons. You hit the button and you say an instance of the thing that starts with that letter. So the category could be fruits and you hit A and you say apple and then you hit the button that resets the timer. You have 10 seconds, and this just keeps going with the number of choices gradually whittling down until you're not able to come up with an example, and you are eliminated from that round of tapple. I think they've taken out the Q as well. Oh, there's no Q? Oh, that makes sense, yes. A to W, no Q. Fair enough. I think so. Yes, fantastic game. I love the fact that the on the bottom of it has the on and off switch, but it also has a compartment where you keep the cards. Yep. So technically, you could carry around as a single object it's its own insert it lived up to everything i wanted it to do and i'm so glad that everyone enjoyed it yeah it's got great toy factor it's a word game that is uh, someone made this observation on my geek buddy list actually because code names and just one and so clover these are a different style of word games they're concept association games they're not really about the features of words there are games that rely on anagrams, for example, like Paperback Adventures. I'm not really down into anagrams, 
But if it's just leveraging the spelling in terms of the first letter of the word, even poor spellers don't tend to find that terribly intimidating as a general rule, in my experience. And it's just enough of the wordiness of it, independent of its concept. So you have to link the concept in terms of the category, but then the actual constitution of the word is relevant with respect to the letter that it starts. It's just a nice change of pace because we've been codenamesing for, for almost 10 years now. And I'm not saying that we time to retire codenames, but codenames is all about concept association. Tapple is just wordsy enough to make it feel a little different. And it's a lovely toy. And unfortunately, it's uncredited by designer. This new edition is put out by USAopoly. No, they, they're called the OP games. No, that's like renaming Simon. Not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Walker. Walker has identified the hill on which he wishes to die. <laughs> Finally for me, got to play a game of Imperial Spells and Steam. Chip the Third, train enthusiast that he is. Chip the Third, he who disdains violence, wanted to play Imperial. And I do not object. Imperial Spells and Steam is a delightful game. I continuously find it a little bit frustrating in terms of... I, I keep wanting it to hit that moment where you don't constantly have to refer to the player aids, it's not really its own fault. There's never going to be a point where we're entirely comfortable with the iconography. It's 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 impossible. And there are no good player aids that are available from the publisher themselves, so you have to print up your own in order to remember what all the engineers and the station masters and the ticket masters and the station subordinates and the the the, the, the choo-choo person and the coal drivers. Have I run out of specialists? Is that is that no, the total? I don't know, there's eight of them. Yeah, really I think it's more like nine or ten. And on top of that, there are the special train cars. Train cars, I feel like we can identify about 80 to 90% of them by sight. That's good. And then there's everything else. It's not super burdensome, but for a light, relatively quick game, you are wrestling with a lot of reference sheets. And you are wrestling with a lot of components because it's a very, very large box stuffed to the gills with nice plastic and pretty little trains. Even more so if you play with little plastic trains from the Little Plastic Train Company, as we do. But I think next time we play Imperial Spells in Steam, we should probably play the Epic variant. I, I remembered that there was an epic variant, but I couldn't remember what the rules changes are. The rules changes to the epic variant are merely that you play such that people need one more domain to tile in order to trigger the end of the game. Because if you're going to go to all the bother of setting all that stuff up... I was about to say, we are at the, at the level where everyone knows the rules and the game is going so quickly, it's making that setup that much more exactly. arduous, right? It's like, okay, well, that took a while to set up and now the gameplay is much shorter because now we don't have to do the teach and people know what they're doing and it's flying along at a great pace. Yes. And it's almost shorter than the actual setup time. No, that, no, no. that that's no, a no, gross no. exaggeration. I know, I'm just saying, but it's, it's almost at that where, you know, there's so much in the box. Yes. And you're, and you're fishing out a lot of stuff that you're not even using. It's true. And then tokens on all the spaces and all of the cities need to be set up. Yes. Anyway. Yes. There is a fair amount of setup, I will grant you. I think all the more reason to try the epic version. So I think next time we play, we're going to play the epic version of Spe Imperial Spells and Steam. I, I don't know how epic that's going to be. It's just going to lead to a slightly longer game. But given, as you say, how quickly it moves and how short the, the, the duration is and how extensive the setup is, that will probably be welcome. But... Honestly, I really like Imperial Spells and Steam's approach to the Rondelle. I really like how you're drowning in new things to play with. It's not entirely unlike Beyond the Sun in that sense. You're always discovering new toys, new levers to pull, and new ways to manipulate a fundamentally underlying, accessible, and approachable system. So that's Imperial Spells and Steam. Designed by Trey Chambers and put out by Level 99 Games. And lastly for me, speaking of epic, Mark, I finally finished our six-month experiment of Ethnos online asynchronous turns okay finally finished 
It was a single I, I, game. I for... knew it was going to take a long time. It wasn't actually six months. <laughs> okay, it was very long, <laughs> and I knew it would be. I, and I and I giggled when I set the game up. <laughs> and how many players? Uh, there was four of us, I believe, maybe five. But anyway, so just weeks of saying player list, drop. There's listeners involved, and I apologize if if I didn't say ahead of time that it was sort of experimental but yes <laughs> i knew it would take long and it's just the difference because ethnos in person flows so quickly but online when people are taking one turn at a time it's like i draw a card i draw a card i draw a card, <laughs> okay tomorrow this person draws a card it was <laughs> oh my arduous <laughs> it was so long but but anyway it, it and i was glad it, it made it all the way to the end because it's still in beta so I'm glad I see all the way to the end with no errors. I'm only imagining the unique circle of perdition that would be getting an email notification to remind you to go top deck as <laughs> <laughs> your turn. I mean, <laughs> seriously. So technically, they, oh, this is designed by Palomori and put out by Simon Games. This could technically be my last game of Ethnos because they're now putting out a, a new edition. With a totally new theming. With so, archaeologists. Yeah, who knows? We'll ha- Like I said, we'll have to see. We'll have to see it. I, we'll have to see. I don't see retiring my copy of Ethnos anytime soon. They would have to do some serious redevelopment work to make me want to give up the John Howe artwork and in favor of, of different types of archaeologists. Like, come on, give me a fantasy race war, man. Give me something I can get behind. <laughs> <laughs> so Ethnos has some very interesting. Why game. are you running away, Walker? Why <laughs> some very interesting game mechanics? You are you're either playing or you're drawing, and you so you have an unlimited hand of cards that you can draw. You keep drawing them into your hand, and then when you play a no, set, no, no, you have a hand size of ten. You have a hand size of ten, like I said, and <laughs> <laughs> and when you play a set, they all either have to be this, of the same race or of the same color. That sounds terrible. Um. <laughs> And all of the cards... Keep digging that hole there, Walker. All of the cards that you don't use go into the pool, so people don't have to top deck anymore. They can either pick from the pool or from the top of the deck, and I like that sort of, you know, you're worried about giving card p- cards to people that they want. All of the different races have special abilities. Uh, yeah, the twist on hand management is great. Yeah. Anytime you play, you have to discard all the rest of your cards. And so that really ups the tension in terms of what you want to do, especially because you frequently put yourself in a position where, well, I'd like to play that small set over there, but the opportunity cost actually is kind of hard, kind of high because I've got this other set I could be working on. It's extremely well done. I mean, I'm very glad it's coming back into print. People were clamoring for it to be reprinted ever since it got went out of print, which was pretty soon after its initial release, to be frank. And this is all tacked onto a uh, area majority sort of map placement. So if you you can just play a set of one at the beginning to put one token in, but then you're going to have to play a set of two and then a set of three and then a set of four in order to get into these different areas that have varying sort of points at the end of the three rounds. And as that to attack on the tension, there are three dragons sort of shuffled into the bottom part of the deck. And when the final dragon gets pulled, then that round is over. So you could be stuck with a bunch of cards in your hand or you might have just happened to be lucky and get the last set out to give yourself an advantage. But we like to talk about social dynamics here at Sobering About Games. If you very much like in-group, out-group psychology, Green Team Wins is an excellent idea. If you like to bully, we recommend Cockroach Poker. If you'd like to combine the two, might I recommend Ethnos, because then you can get into the group chanting, where you're either pressuring someone to play or draw, or if you really need the round to end, you can start chanting for the dragon. It's very much like chanting for Raw when you're out of the round in Raw, but a little more edge to it. It's marvelous. And that is Ethnos, designed by Paolo Mori. 
And those are the games we played last week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Crowdfunding, Walker. Crowdfunding. Now we're going to go into a lot more detail about, I think, both of these games in this week's episode of Pledge of Indifference, which is our Patreon show where we talk about stuff that's on crowdfunding. But right now on Kickstarter is Seismic. Seismic is a truly, truly excessive Troops on a Map game where you have these beautiful miniatures. And in, in a world where uh, frequently relatively standard euros sell for in excess of 100 US dollars, Seismic, for its deluxe pledge, is selling for 250 which is A, a lot of money, and B, I have no idea how he's producing it for that little. To be frank, I don't understand. He says it's profitable, that price. I'll take his word for it. And so, if you're at all interested in Troops on a Map games, I highly recommend you go check out Seismic on Kickstarter. It is a marvel to behold in terms of table presence. I even saw the, I looked at a lot of the pictures of the cardboard version. I really like how they designed. It's very clever, the, yeah. Yeah, the giant the giant rocket that takes all your people to safety. I thought that was interesting. And, and the and, stacking limit is enforced by virtue of notches in the terrain tiles that you yeah. slot troops in. Yeah, it's very clever. I, I'm infrequently, I, I'm frequently worried about publishers who spend a lot of time and effort and potentially money doing all the graphic design and redevelopment for the cheaper versions. The same thing happened with Gatefall because I look at how they've taken a truly over-the-top miniatures-heavy experience and turn it into a comparatively incredibly affordable version and then almost nobody pledges for it. It's just, it's the nature of the medium, right? If they were on retail shelves, maybe they'd have more success. But at that point, you've already taken the sunk cost and the risk. But it, it's, it, it seems to be the case that in, in crowdfunding, people will knock you for not having a cheaper version. But then if you offer them the cheaper version, they don't take it. So it seems like you have to offer the cheaper version at a loss just to keep critics silent. I can, I can see that. Yeah. 100%. On the topic of keeping critics silent... <laughs> Guards of Atlantis 2 is also up in crowdfunding, and oh my goodness, the complaints. <laughs> now, maybe this is because I've been paying more attention to the Guards of Atlantis 2 fora. Now, this was our game of the year last year. Uh, it is my favorite game published in the past five years. Guards of Atlantis 2 is a marvelous epic-making game. Pe- people have been clamoring for it, 
And now it's just, why don't you offer the neoprene mats in this combination? Why isn't the big box back? Why is the box so small? Why can't the box be smaller? This, that, and endless, endless, endless. It, it is the standard story of a lot of things in the market. You can't win. I have endless sympathy for producers. After all, I am one of those people who, who stands by the sideline complaining when the product is into my specifications. At any rate, if you want to get on Guards of Atlantis 2, it is very expensive, but oh my goodness, the value you get out of it. I, I, I can't quibble. There's new content in the form of two new hero packs. I am definitely pledging for those. Even though they will not fit in my big box, I will live. And we'll, uh, at, at listener request, actually, probably on Pledge of Indifference, we'll go into which hero packs we recommend above the others, just at a, on a quick top-level line. So, Seismic and Guards of Atlantis 2 on Kickstarter and GameFound, respectively. Golden Geek Awards are going right now, Mark. The nominations have come in, and now the nominations are out. So now you can vote on all of the categories from best podcast to heavy games and light games and and innovative and all of those. What's that podcast with that pretentious French-Canadian who can't actually speak French? Uh, I can't. All the games that hate you are good? I, I don't know. Yeah, because I definitely don't want to vote for that one. No, that's terrible. Yeah. And make sure you vote for Wingspan. <laughs> Deep cut Walker <laughs> referencing internet controversies from a few years ago. And now on a similar topic, our least favorite thing to talk about here at Swag, publishers or designers making the hobby toxic and exclusionary. In Matt Eklund's Station Fall, more on that later, each of the characters' preferred pronouns are presented in a lovely bit of representation and inclusion. Maskeoka, the Spanish language publisher of the game, not only stripped that section from the characters' bios, but a member of the localization team, Jose G. Garrido, justified the move, saying they will not contribute to, and I quote, hysteria, end quote. In response to criticism of this blatantly exclusionary bit of editing, Maskeoka has made a number of non-apologies. Look, it's quite simple, really. People get to be addressed how they wish to be addressed. By actively removing something in the author's original, Maskeoka went out of their way to declare their hostility to that principle. And people certainly have the freedom to be reprehensible in much the same way that unless and until Maskeoka reverse course and apologize appropriately, we here at Swag are free to denounce their actions and their words, as well as strongly discouraging any publishers or designers from partnering with them again. That is the news, and why sometimes it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game, which is Stationfall. Stationfall was designed by Matt Eklund and published by Ion Game Design this year after successful crowdfunding. Matt Eklund has designed such other games as Pen's Tra- Pax Transhumanity, and Kriegbot, those for Sierra Madre, as well as co-development work in a number of other projects that we are not going to discuss. Stationfall is a one to a billion player count game. <laughs> Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Stationfall? Well, in Stationfall, it's the early rush, Mark. Run around the station, picking up the compromat. <laughs> now, while you're doing this, you're sort of watching what the other characters are doing and hoping that someone has similar objectives to what you have, so therefore, from the sidelines, you can sort of nudge them along their way and help them out until the very end where you bop them on the head with a wrench, as long as they're not wearing a helmet. It's wrench fest, Walker, and everyone's invited. It's, it is so, so true. <laughs> Make sure the lights are out. <laughs> the braining will begin. <laughs> Look, we don't like to kink shame here at So Very Wrong About Games. If you want to film your wrench fest, that's fine. Just uh, sometimes the authorities have words to say about it. So before we get onto the game, I just want to talk about this one thing that I seem to be seeing come into some games. So I'm wondering if we're going to have a new sort of 
uh, you know, we have we have worker placement, a new mechanic name, and this will be guilt-free player interaction. Sure. All right. So, or conscious-free or non-consequential player interaction, because I've seen this a lot coming. So, you're 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 killing characters or you're fighting someone but you don't know who they are like everyone has a hidden identity so this happens in, in station fall things like this also happen in, in blood in the clock tower where you sort of don't have a choice you know you're the demon you have to attack people but you you know you know it's it's known but you don't know who you're attacking or you don't have a choice because that's what you have to right. do every round now and you're doing it randomly so it doesn't yeah. really matter like because you don't know Sometimes you might get a hint at, oh, this might, person might reveal my identity, but a lot of the times you don't. You just kill him just for the sake because you have to. Well, let's, let's not make it more gruesome than necessary. Uh, people seldom get annihilated in Station Fall. Normally they just get downed. Let's keep the sanitary burden. It's true, but uh, yeah. Yes, well, it's when you're true. Talking, when it's you're true talking, you shot them right in the chest at point blank range or dropped them with a firebomb. They're just downed. They, they, they could get better. It's true. Just just wipe some neurogel in it. It'll be fine. So other, reason, other games where you don't have a choice is sort of like Dwellings of Elder Veil. You just need to do that action. You just move in, do the action, and then just happens to be combat at the end because. Mm. Well, that's not not to get too far afield from Station Fall. I think you're you're uh, lumping together two different kinds of things in the same category deliberately, and I think illustratively. There's the hidden allegiance games where nominally there's a disjunct between factions on the board and the player. And so there's a level of remove from what you're doing to the things on the board and the actual players. So things like most Leo Colavini games, where you you know your player yellow, but nobody else knows that. Like Incognito, there's also a War of Whispers more recently, and Station Fall as well. And then there is the other uh, uh, kind of situation where you were obliged to engage in violence whether you want to or not, and so it it seems to be that choosing your target is less aggressive than in situations where you're not obliged to engage in violence. So, for example, uh, this is one of the things that I pointed out about Door of the Lesser Houses by Devious Weasel Games. Every turn, pretty much the only thing you can do is slander somebody. So when you start slandering people, it's hard to take it too personally, because <laughs> that's, that's right. what you do. That's literally the game. So, but with respect to the first category... I agree that it doesn't accrue blame to the individual. So there's the perpetrator and there's the victim, right? If you care about the perpetrator getting away blameless, I think it works fine. If you care about the hurt feelings of the victim, I think in these cases it's worse. If you, when we're playing Kemet or Senji or a traditional troops on a map game, and you figure out that I've got something you want and you go and you take it from me, and especially if you win points in the process if I'm not being a huge baby on a given day, which is, you know, odds vary. I can usually shrug and say, yeah, I see why you did that. But if in a game of station fall, you decide to brain somebody arbitrarily, and it just so happens that the person you brained happened to be the person that I need to get off the station. I really, really, really get frustrated by stuff yes, like that. But not at me. But <laughs> See, that's the thing. Yes. So it depends on what your design priority is. Is your design priority be able to shrug and say, oh, I, I'm not to blame? Or is your design priority to prevent players from feeling frustrated? Those are two very important things and two very different things. <laughs> and then there's the combat system that have that has instant recovery or no risk combat where the yes. troops are so cheap to get back or you get everything back and the battle doesn't matter anyway. Well, that was one good thing about uh, you know, going back to the Masters of the Universe Fields of Eternity game. 
winning a combat or at least knocking somebody out gives the team a victory point, but the defeated character comes back at full health right away. There's no rust or recuperation required, so there's, there's good stuff in that. But anyway, we're talking about station fall. One last thing. Oh, no, we're not talking about, talking about space. One, station in fall. one second we will. Okay. Then there's the other one where everything is random because there's this new, the new Falling Skies game where you're just putting out ships and there <laughs> sure. just happens to be combat and you have no idea what numbers are underneath each ship. Not only that, there are, <laughs> there are random cards of where these starfalls are going to be. Sure. So you have no idea what that is. You have no idea why people are fighting here. Just the, all of the information is In complete. fairness, it's just, in oh. fairness, you have not played that game. That's true. But so. I've read the rule book. I'm just saying. You're not going to like this, but you know uh, a game of conflict that I think does a really, really good job of minimizing hurt feelings in much the same way? Cosmic Encounter. Because you're told at the top of your turn, go attack Black. You and both you and Black both get to shrug and say, all right, let's do it. Anyhow, station fall. Station fall. So, so there's a bunch of characters on the station, and at the top of the game, you're given two identity cards, and you can pick one of them to be. With a relatively mild opportunity cost, you can reveal to be the other one instead. And that part I really liked. You had a certain degree of flexibility. But nonetheless, there are these two characters whose usually survival, or at the very least actions and agendas, you care about. And that part leads to, as you had alluded to in your unhelpful summary, some occasionally good bits of misdirection and curiosity and trying to suss out what people are doing, an unwillingness to be a little bit too overt as to who you're supporting. That part's kind of cool. Yeah, so like Mark said, we have 12 to 14 characters, and they're all sort of milling around this pre-populated uh, space station that is now, at the moment, plummeting to the Earth. Yes. And you have about 15 to 12 minutes Game rounds. Game rounds to uh, figure out what you need to do to get some victory points. Yeah. In many ways, uh, I feel that Station Falls' strengths and weaknesses make it the game that Nemesis wanted to be. Nemesis promised to be this game of tension and secrecy and not knowing why various people were doing various things for various reasons. And at its best, I never felt that Nemesis was really doing that. But Station Fall, I really do. Every time somebody activates a character and devotes any amount of resources, whether it's trivial or substantial, I'm wondering why they're doing what they're doing. And there's a genuine sense of paranoia and tension about whether or not I'm going to be able to get my stuff done in light of all this stuff that's going on. Additionally, I know where everything is. And I don't have to go on some sort of weird treasure hunt. <laughs> if you're, you know, if you have to go release the antimatter, for example, you know where the antimatter is. You don't have to go wandering around the station hoping you stumble upon it. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a, a computer game called Space Station 13, where a lot of people played that, say it's very similar. The map is completely populated with all these weird things that could manifest itself in the game. They don't always do. There's a right. Project X that could be something. Like you just said, there's the antimatter engine that be, could be brought out and explode in all sorts of different places in different ways. There are escape pods that you can escape from. There are things you can do. Oh, there's like bio areas. There's uh, an artifact that you can steal. And like Mark said, it has this very interesting sort of, you got to remember, you have those secret cards, but no one knows that who you're not really controlling. So you're just manipulating all 12 to 14 of these characters in sort of this weird way to try to get your things. And I think it's very interesting because they're called your conspirators. Like as long as you have enough cubes on them, you can activate them. And like in the last game we played, you can never, there's a chance that you'll never activate your actual character. Right. Throughout the whole game by just manipulating everybody else, you can 
get what your character needs. And I think yeah. that's fabulous. So, for for example, the engineer wants the antimatter to be released. Doesn't matter who does it. The engineer is just happy if it's if it gets done, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because it emphasizes how rich the variety of interactions can be between the various characters, and it and it also gives you more room for cover. You know, if something needs to get done, you don't have to activate your own player character the entire time to get it done. But it also heightens the sense of arbitrariness. I think you've said this a number of times, and I, I think it's apropos. Stationfall feels very much like an event uh, more than a game sometimes. I don't know. I'm not interested in getting into essentialist discussions about what a game is and what an event is. But nonetheless, when I enjoy Stationfall the most is when I completely turn off any sense of competitive brain. And I don't even mean, like, accept a loss. I mean, well, it'd be nice if these things on my list happened, but eh, let's see what happens. I don't mean I'm playing arbitrary, but you just have to completely, however competitive you normally are, take 10 to 20% off the top. Because any number of wild things could happen. Your agenda could be completely stymied by someone deciding to do something completely randomly. Your, your agenda could become more difficult just because of the composition of characters on the map. Your agenda could become more difficult merely because of the random Project X that happens to be in the deck. You name it. And so if you start want, wanting, you know, start really caring about competitiveness and, and getting out your particular stats, eh, you're along for the ride. Any points you score are gravy. Yeah, you could you could have had this whole thing elaborately set up where the turn before you you deceptively did a couple of things and now it's your turn, you're ready to act. You use both of your actions, you bribe somebody else, you use some, you know, uh conspiratorial information to use another character, and you've done it, you've activated the escape pod, you have everything in it, now you just have to wait till your next turn, and then someone like throws a toxic bomb into the into yep. the, the, the pod and kills everyone. Though so these are things that can happen. And this is why I think you made my point much better than I would later. It is much more an event than than a game. And I think you'll be disappointed if you think it's like a very strategic sort of plan out and get done what I want to be done, as opposed to just letting the flow and having a great time. Right. And part of the problem is with games of this ilk, like Stationfall, where you have to accept that you're there for, I mean, some people would call it a narrative. I don't, there's not really much of a narrative, but Wild and interesting things do happen. And there are interesting flashpoints, you know, again, to return to a classic one. The moment antimatter is released, it just focuses everyone's attention on it. And suddenly you're jockeying about, okay, you, you've got to rob the antimatter from whoever released it. Now you're going to try to eject it to space, but then somebody jumps out to space and brings it back on the ship and then leaves again so that they're not dead when it blows up. Anyway, interesting capers like that. I would say capers rather than stories. Part of the issue is that... Whatever kind of successful narrative you get from actively pursuing your victory conditions, and this is again a, a callback to Nemesis, tend to be rather unexciting because much of the time you're just moving from point A to point B, <laughs> right? Like if you happen to have somebody arbitrarily close to where uh, to, to whatever it is you need manipulated because they went there to go get some compromise or pick up a helmet for no reason that makes things easier fine but much of the time especially when it comes time to get your characters out of dodge and and back to safety because a lot of them care about that and the ones that don't i'll talk a little bit more about that later much of the time you're just walking and that's fine it's okay because every step you take is a consequential move and sting is watching you do it and it's giving the other players information about who you control and you put yourself at risk. But, you know, 
I wish that you spent more time doing interesting things with your characters than just moving them to spaces. Yeah, they have all sorts of bonus movement stuff, but they never really... Very situational and very... Oh, very seldom the characters have bonus movement. Usually yeah. it's just a bonus pickup. Only yeah. a very small number. Well, I mean, like, some can move through ducks. Some can do, like, zero-G stuff. But yeah. it's very situational and hardly never comes up. And I have that, yeah, movement bogs sort of everything down and, and sometimes leads to just being like, I cannot not get done uh, what I want to do. So that's what a question I had. Do you think there's time to figure out someone else's identity and purposely get in their way and also complete your own objectives. It is vastly easier to complicate someone's agenda than pursue your own. And very frequently, you can do it almost trivially. Uh, and that actually leads to, to, to the other the other thing. Station Fall, in my plays, devolves towards chaos every single time. Order cannot be maintained <laughs> in the face of all these people because... There are a thousand reasons why someone could go do something that has the effect of just upping the chaos level on the station. For example, the last time we played, someone happened to be controlling the colonel. We didn't know that. And the colonel wants the secret death weapon to be released. At the time, when Sidewinder released it, we thought she was just doing it randomly. And that was plausible because in past games, people have done it randomly just to see what would happen. And it's hard to blame them. Again, you have to turn the competitive part off. You're given this weird sandbox of oddities. It's hard. It would be churlish to say, why did you do that if you didn't have any reason? Well, to see what it was like. Fine. If you've got a wrench and you're standing there. And there's some character who's clearly making a beeline for the escape pods, and you know you don't control them. Why not brain them upside the head and down them so it's it's harder for them to get their points? Why not? Seems to make sense in the process. It hardly costs you anything. You can't activate the character you wanted to activate anyway. They're exhausted. Or you're, you're afraid that somebody else would make the inference and figure out who you were, and you'd get brained the next turn. There's a thousand ways in which Stationfall devolves into chaos, even before you start worrying about things like antimatter or death weapons. And as a consequence, the characters whose special abilities and, and whose agendas rely on death and destruction are just easy mode. <laughs> yes. So uh, just to give it a, an example from the last game, I, was, I had the choice of two characters to control. There was the inspector, and there was the security bot. The inspector, ideally, wanted to escape to Earth with certain data, having done certain things with the briefcase. I got real close. Real close. And then everyone died. Okay, fine, fine. I then pivot to the security bot near the end of the game. And I start, I for, for the first time, because I'd been relatively casual, I'd been relatively uh, uh, overconfident, shall I say, that the inspector was going to make it out alive. That was before the death laser got revealed. I then look at the security bot, and the security bot's victory conditions are all down people like this, down people like that, down people like that. It's like, oh, well, a lot of these people are already dead anyway, so uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? And I, my score wasn't competitive, but f given that I had paid zero attention to get into advancing those victory conditions, it was far higher than it should have been. And again, so there's the security bot, there's the cyborg, there's a whole bunch of different roles whose victory conditions are, we want the following people dead. And those characters, they don't really have to sweat it as in the same way. Because again, Station Fall devolves towards chaos. It's enjoyable chaos, but competitive, not in my experience. So because of the chaos, I really feel that the first game is sort of like a wash. Like in order to get sort of like the feel of how this is all going to, I was going to say evolve, how this is all going to devolve into <laughs> craziness. 
Because, like we said, the, and the setup is not nothing. There's, uh, yeah. there's all sorts of tokens, and even depending on the characters that get chosen, there's like 30 different characters. You're only going to pick a small set of those. And different characters change the setup of the board itself, yeah, yeah, which is great. Different items, different escape pods, which, yeah, like you said, which is great. But all of these tokens have to be added. Then then, then you have to fish out main cards for all those characters. All the compromise of those characters. Compromise of those characters, the small cards that you're going to give to the yep. characters. Setup's not nothing. Then, like I said, the first game is a wash. But then after that, I really enjoy the fact that the actions that you could do are just so, I, guess, I don't want to say bog standard makes it sound like it's bad, but it just is. You just get to do what you yes. normally do in a video game or a thing. You know, you move, you can drag a body, you can yep. throw stuff. There's nothing overly complicated. No individual action is particularly complicated. The com- the complexity of the game itself of Stationfall comes from the special abilities of the characters, the fact that there's so many different stations on the eponymous station uh, that you can do, you know, you start getting into console actions versus how the airlock works when it's damaged. And yeah, every individual action is very simple, which leads to the process of teaching station fall. Station fall is absolutely one of those games where regardless of your normal preferences, my normal preference for teaching a game, I've been pretty clear about this is to be as comprehensive as possible. I will tell you everything about how the game works before we take the first turn. Stationfall is one of the rare exceptions to that. I just can't. I gesture towards the board, be like, okay, here are a couple touchstones. If you eject this, bad things will happen. Here's where the monster is. Here's how the monster get out. And then we go in detail over the characters about what they want. But, you know, invariably, like, okay, so how do I manufacture this new gun? It's like, okay, we'll get an officer into the manufactory and they can 3D print a gun. Go ahead. The other problem is, though, that I, I think this kind of identifies how incredibly niche Stationfall is as an experience. Because this is a relatively rules-heavy game, and it's an accretion of small rules that are easy to forget. A relatively rules-heavy game that is not very deterministic, and where you can't really be in control of your own fate. That is a very narrow niche, I think, in hobbyist gaming. Yeah, it's... In- I think it would be definitely group dependent, right? There are some people that are going to hate this. They're going to bounce off it really hard because they'll take it too seriously. Yes. Yes. You absolutely cannot take station fall too seriously. I think actually chip the third's attitude was, was uh, a good one. He found it. The only way he found it frustrating wasn't so much because his agenda was being frustrated was because he just naturally wanted everyone to go get their stories accomplished, right? Because every character has their own little narrative about what it is they're going to do, you know, the cyborg wants revenge. The uh, the corpsicle wants to, to revive herself and get off the station. The inspector wants to escape with their ill-gotten goods. You know, this, that, and the other. And Chip the Third was very disappointed every time someone couldn't get what they wanted. You could almost twist it into a game like that where there's, like, two people that are trying to get the personal objectives of particular cards. Yes. And the other, the other three or four people are trying to get as many objectives of the other players, like some sort of weird scoring system where they're just trying to yeah. help. Every, that'd be no, I, I think a redeveloped station fall with had some of the same conceits and some of the same overall theming and setting elements whereby you could make it purely cooperative where you needed to conspire against some, some form of AI controlling other elements of the game to get as many people's agendas uh, uh, successfully accomplished as possible. That sounds promising. A team-based game that, that blew up this idea. You're not just controlling two characters, but you have an entire roster and you just need to get a certain number of them past a certain threshold and whichever team did better. I think there are ways to lessen the sense of... I, 
helplessness is too strong a word, but it's kind of sort of helpless. Again, if you are feeling competitive, the way to feel like you're empowered and have agency is to embrace the chaos. <laughs> Just so, we haven't talked about the, the funny part about the cameras. The cameras are on. <laughs> and so they're filming everything. And that has this interesting sort of, you know, innocent, guilty, suspect track that is personal to the player, not to any, not the to the char- character, not yeah. to the character. So if, if the cameras spot you braining somebody or shooting someone, then you're going to move on that track and you cannot win the game if you are guilty. Yes. Personally. I thought that was very interesting. So the cameras are being turned off constantly. <laughs> then, then the braining happens. Well, and then get, the cameras get flicked back on. Again, it's cool and it leads to narrative and it leads to theme and all those yeah. things. And when I was first explaining the game, I played a pre-production version on Tabletop Simulator for the first time with uh, with Dan Thoreau. He was extraordinarily patient, far more patient than I am with teaching Station Fall. I try to be as patient as possible. And you figure that the cameras are going to keep you safe longer than they are. But there is a number of problems. Number one, some stations are just dark. Number two, there are ways to kill you without becoming suspect because it depends on where the victim is, not where the perpetrator is. So the space claw is a way to guilt-free kill any number of people you want if anyone goes out into space. Number three, the cameras can get turned off. Number four, the power could go out very easily, and then it's very hard, and here you are trying to restore the station's power and then turn the cameras back on, all the while neglecting your own victory conditions to do so. Someone could leave your character in the dark room. and Exactly. Or... Somebody could be playing the cyborg or the outcast or what have you, and they don't care. They can win well guilty. They can brain people no problem. They're not people. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's just one more detail in the soup of chaos. It 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 purports to give you order. There's a lot of illusory structure that Station Fall can make you think is going to have happen. If you approach Station Fall with the right mindset and you've got people that are willing to swallow this degree of rules complexity and this low degree of competitive control, Station Fall can be a blast. I have no regrets about my time with Station Fall. And if you have the right group together, and especially since the playing time becomes surprisingly manageable once every no- one knows what they're doing, you know, 75 to 90 minutes even if they're really humming, which is great. Uh, but one person who takes it too seriously, one person who thinks that they're playing a competitive experience, a couple of people who just really don't get into the zeitgeist of the game, or people who think that this is a, a, a PvP combat situation and start the violence too early. There's a lot of ways that the station fall can lead to a bad set of experiences for people at the table. I just feel very fortunate that I've had more good experiences than bad. On that note, we streamed it just this week. So if you're interested in seeing how it's played at all, you can go to our live channel on YouTube and you can check out our live playing of Station Fall. Yeah, I was I was initially very dubious. Having played it the first time, I somewhat confidently declared that I didn't think that the rules grit merited the competitive experience. And that turned out to be true, but once you jettison competitive expectations and just accept that you're on for the ride, I think there's a lot of interesting situations that come up in Station Fall because I think it's important to emphasize again Every time you set up Station Fall, you choose somewhere around 14 characters that are that are present at the station at that time out of a pool of about 28, and they completely change the tenor of the game. Some characters aren't even characters at all. One of them is an object. One of them is data. <laughs> One of them is a rat. Yeah, exactly. That, that, the telepathic rat is the object, and... They change the nature of the station. It's not just that they have different agendas that complicate things. The station will be different every time. And so you do get a real good sense of the experience. It's not the same kind of of narrative every time that you get from some uh, comparable experiences where people are like, ooh, the intrigue. It's like, yeah, we were playing Nemesis and you didn't know whether I needed to get to that hidden room or this hidden room. 
mean that room that didn't even get flipped for the game? Oh, yeah, that that's the that one. one. Okay. That's the one. The other the other thing is I will again to to return back to the balance of complexity and simplicity. When people ask the big important question, how do I get off safely? That is at least a relatively more straightforward answer than again compared to Nemesis. And I was like, well, there are three ways, and one of the uh... <laughs> Sage Valge is like, here's how escape pods work. Done. I'll play it anytime. I had no idea. We've I I've sort of forced no, I didn't force you to get it, but I suggest yes, I suggested that you pick it up. You put me in a half Nelson due to the fact that you slammed my face against the table several times. Very much enjoyed Station Thirteen, Space Station Thirteen. And I heard uh, some other, I heard the, the pod boys talking about it. And I really felt as though that you played an actual character. I had no idea that you sort of had this sort you of. You heard me talk about it yeah, but back I, when it was I, on crowdfunding. Yes, it's true, but I still didn't get the sense that you, that you didn't actually control a specific character. I see. And I even saw. It's the, my fault. Okay. I, I even saw the Kickstarter and it looks as though there's all these different characters that you got to choose to play. I didn't realize it was this sort of like. I can't believe you get more out of the pod boys than you get out of me. This is terrible. Oh my God. Wow. Mark, you are a pod boy. Oh, that's true. I am a pod boy. This is confusing. <laughs> I Schrodinger reveal as a pod boy. Long story short, I am so glad that you picked up Station Fall. I have enjoyed every play of it, and I'm looking forward to more. The, the trick is, here's my question for its longevity, though. And not that we would, you know, exhaust the circumstance. I'm reasonably confident that we would always see new experiences in Station Fall. It's not the kind of thing I want to play all the time. And my question is, when and if we pull it out, say, two months from now, how much will we have retained? Will we be able to get back into it relatively easy? I think so. I hope so. I, I have reason to believe that we'll be able to do it. I'm reasonably confident. And to be frank, Stationfall is absolutely the kind of game where you can just make a rules error and keep going. It's not like it's going to destabilize the competitive scene because there wasn't one to begin with. <laughs> so you yeah. might as well just play it out. <laughs> it really feels like the, the most fiddly part is on your on your player cards and exactly what you need to do. Sure. Because some of your objectives are hyphenated under a main sort of yes. goal. If you don't accomplish that first goal, then none of the other goals matter. Right, right. And so, you know, remembering that that's how it works and exactly what you need to do to do those goals, I think that's just the the, the most fiddly part. Everything else is... Fair Thank. enough, fair enough. I, too, was very pleasantly surprised with the dividends that additional time with Stationfall has paid. And for somebody who I don't identify myself as a very competitive individual in terms of outlook, but I do identify games, competitive games, as being driven by the possibility of good play leading to better outcomes. Uh, and so I was very pleased to discover that I was willing to abandon that presupposition in the case of Stationfall, and I feel like I've had excellent experiences as a consequence. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. Sowronggames.com is definitely the best place on the internet, bar none. It has all kinds of great information about the people who contribute to So Very Wrong About Games, as well as our various policies and various weird things that we've done in the past. It won the So Very Wrong About Games uh, Best Website Award last year. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was tough competition. It was. Yeah, th those those Gibbons had to deliberate for a long time before giving out the award. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We appreciate your having spent some time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. 
Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right. But remember, you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.